Hello, listeners. Hello. Welcome to your favorite movie podcast, Kino Inferno. I am the smooth cherry liqueur known as Aidan Barkadine. And I am the fuzzy little man peach known as Mark Smith. Oh, I thought you were going to say the one pound Carlsberg known as Mark Smith. <laughs> <laughs> one pound Carlsbergs, what a throwback to our uni days. I know, remember that? I know. That was before the, the war. <laughs> <laughs> I went back to that bar a couple of a couple of years ago after it changed hands, and I was like, "Oh, I'll get get a one pound Carlsberg, three pound, livid, three pound, three fucking pound." Well, that's Johnson's Britain for you, mate. That's that's Tory, <laughs> that's Tory Britain all over. <laughs> Can't even have a one pound Carlsberg anymore. Probably Brexit, isn't it? Where's Carlsberg coming from? Uh, it's Danish, because they have yeah. Mads Mikkelsen doing the adverts. Oh, that's right. Yeah. There you go. That's how you know something is Danish. If it's if it's endorsed by Mads Mikkelsen, it has to be Danish. He endorses Danish pastries as well. And cannibalism. Mostly cannibalism. Yeah, he loves cannibalism. He does just love eating people. That's why they cast him in Hannibal, because he's a, he's a cannibal. <laughs> it's an actual cannibal. <laughs> he's a, he's a li- I was going to say he's a live-action cannibal, but that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> On this podcast, we don't just discuss cannibalism. We also discuss... Cinemalism. Cinema. Very good. Very good. I, I enjoyed that. Can I, am I good enough for what culture yet? <laughs> or am I too, still too sloppy? <laughs> well, I mean, they hired me, so who knows? They did. They did. Anyway. Pound, if they've hired the one pound Carlsberg, why don't they hire I, the two pound Grosch? I, I have I have already established I'm a fuzzy little man peach. I'm not going to be your bargain basement <laughs> beer, okay? Uh, anywho, um, we discuss movies on this podcast, famously. Um, today is no different. We're discussing <laughs> two films linked by a theme. And the theme is... Good, bad sequels. And what we mean by that is sequels that are considered bad, possibly by fans, critics, the people that you know don't really matter because it's our opinions that we're going to be spouting yes. today. Um, I think my, my choice is considered bad by critics, I believe, in the main. Fans, not so much. Your choice is uh, more debatable among the fans, I would say. Critics weren't too keen on it either. It's uh, okay. currently sits around the 40% mark, which I think is criminally low, well, to be honest. I need to look up what uh, uh, Crank 2 got on the brand tomorrow. I didn't look this up. Don't worry, I've got it up right here. Always got it up, listeners. Do you know what? Weirdly... Crank Two has a sixty-four percent on Rotten I bet. I bet that's that's retroactive though, because I feel like it has a cult following now. However, on the cinema score, it has an audience score of a C minus. That's outrageous. Yeah, weirdly, so critics thought Crank Two was better than what audiences did. Which, given we're about to discuss Crank Two, you'll probably understand why. That is surprising and shocking that audiences mm. didn't like it as much as critics did. If Jason Statham was here, he'd go, that's fucking shocking, you can't. He'd just just call everyone a cunt and leave, I think. He would, which is how we like him. Well, anyway, without further ado, Mark, why don't we get into the first film, which is 2009's Crank 2 High Voltage. My name is Jeff Chelios, and today I didn't die. It's 
dawn. Well, heart. Why not just let me die? They were keeping you alive to farm your organs. <laughs> they gave you an artificial heart? Yeah, yeah, yeah. How many bars is the battery show? What? You got one hour. Keep your body electrically charged to keep it pumping. If you can get hold of your heart, I'm reasonably sure I can put it back in. Crank 2 is the second chapter in the saga of Chev Chelios, a man who in this film has his heart forcibly replaced with an aviacore total artificial heart by a Chinese triad, which requires electricity to keep going. Uh, hence the name, high vol the subtitle High Voltage. He escapes the triad and searches for his heart, encountering more gangsters, a deranged Asian hooker, and numerous methods of keeping his electric heart going, all of which stretch credulity to breaking point. So... I mean, that's as much plot as Crank 2 has, really. We start off with we start off with Chev, Chelios, falling from a plane, which was how we left him at the end of Crank 1. Uh, he plummets down. He hits the road. You'd think he's dead. He's not. Uh, a Chinese triad immediately picks him up, uh, because that's how Chev Chelios' life plays out. Uh, he has his heart entirely removed, replaced with the artificial heart, which requires a... Initially an external lithium battery, which then gets lost, so he has to find numerous more ingenious ways to uh, keep the electricity pumping through his body. Um, which is kind of like that, that's how the, the, so the first movie, he's like the bus from speed, he can't let his heart rate drop below a certain level, yeah. or this toxin takes over his body. In this movie, he's got to keep the electricity going, or his heart will just stop and he'll die. Um, so that's that, so that's happening, that's stressful. Um, basically, his dick is also going to get cut off at one point, and at that point, Chev decides enough is enough, breaks free from the triad, and then the rest of the movie is essentially just things happening to him. And him just finding, like you say, more and more ways of keeping himself juiced up, which, yeah. I mean... Yeah, I... Whilst, he searches, whilst he searches for his... Uh... His jam tart, as he calls it, his heart. And I feel like the final line of your summary just sums up this movie perfectly, saying it stretches credulity, because that is this entire fucking movie is stretching the credulity of anybody that was involved in it. Yeah, frankly, I'm, I'm shocked that this movie exists in the form that it does. I'm amazed that this it's... movie exists in, a, in the modern era. <laughs> like... Yeah, because the first thing we should say, we mentioned the Chinese triad, right? We should get this off the bat straight away. This movie is offensive on almost every level. And to pretty much but every creed, it's offensive to. To every creed, to every every gender going. Um, I mean, well, if it was made, well, well, if they make Crank 3, which they keep threatening to do, I imagine there'll be some transphobic content for us all to enjoy. But there's some racist content in this, especially against the Chinese. But the Mexicans get a good hiding as well. Mm-hmm. Um, in fairness, the British don't come off looking too good either. No, because Jason Statham is just the most stereotypical British football hooligan and type. All there is. British people represented in the Crank universe are football hooligans. <laughs> yeah. Even Jerry Halliwell sat as a football hooligan. In what this. the fuck was Jerry Halliwell doing in this movie? We'll get there. We will get there because <laughs> that that was something. Like, there's a lot of stuff in this movie that had me baffled, but that is one of the things that baffled me the most. Yeah, we'll, we will get there, my friend. Um, yes, we should say 
deep, uh, well, yeah, bafflingly racist Chinese uh, stuff going on. To the point where there's bits with guys running around with fucking lampshade hats on and shit. And bear in mind, this is set in just modern day LA. Yes, it's actually it's set in like an undisclosed location, really, isn't it? Like, yeah, yeah. Like it's supposed to be LA because that's I, where the first it movie shot, set. It was shot in LA. Yeah. But, yeah. but they don't really specify where exactly this one takes place. No, it's set in chaos land. Yeah, like it's. Because there's, there's times where, like, looking at the sort of, like, melting pot of, like, different, like, races and cultures, I'm like, is, at one point I was like, oh, is this supposed to be, like, New Mexico? It kind of gives you vibes of New Mexico. And then I was like, okay, yeah. is, it, is it actually Mexico? Or, like... I, I struggle to keep up with this movie. It probably doesn't help that everything is so desaturated as well. Yeah, the, the camera style is, like, everything is super desaturated, but also pretty much the entire movie is shot on handheld cameras. For which are then some also... reason... Which are then also edited between, like, there won't be any shot, there's no shot reverse shot in this movie. It's just, it's just random shot. shots edited chaotically together. Um, to, em- to emulate the level of stress that Chev Chelios is in. But also, it-, it creates a migraine-like effect when you're watching this movie. One thing I'll say about this movie is, if I was to describe it in one word, it's ugly. And that just uh, that applies to the way it looks, yeah, yeah. The, the overall, like, tone of it. It's tone, yes. it's uh, it's actual disdain for anybody. I was about originally yeah. I was like, oh, it's just got disdain for anyone that's not white. But I was like, no, all the white people in this movie are absolute pieces of shit as well. Yeah, and this is one of the most misanthropic movies ever. Made. Genuinely, like it's it's a deeply unpleasant watch, <laughs> in my opinion. Yes, and yet there is something about it. There's some magic it to the movie. Really has a, a charm. I think it might be in the fact that. It's so far beyond the pale when it comes to being offensive. Yeah. Uh, because, like, you know, it's, like you say, it's quite racist. It's misogynistic. It's homophobic. Uh, you know, it's yeah, also... This is this is the kind of movie where if a woman appears, it's like a countdown clock until her tits come out. Literally. Or, in, you know, yeah. that one stripper's case, her tits literally come out of her tits. Her tits yes, spill uh, forth. This features a stripper being shot in the fake tits. And then the tits exploding. There are so many stripper deaths in this movie as well, I want to point out. I actually lost count. Yeah. Strippers in the Crank universe are often used as human shields. <laughs> <laughs> oh, just collateral damage. <laughs> so, I feel like we've we kind of jumped straight into, like, everything that's kind of wrong with this movie. Um, the crank, the crankosity. The crankosity. Because, I mean, we were talking about this earlier. Like, I've not seen the first movie for quite some time. I do mostly remember it. But no, I've not me, seen me it for neither. A while. I mean, this is the thing. If you jump straight into Crank Two, it's fine because whenever a character appears from Crank One, they immediately show fast cut flashback to their role in Crank One, up to and including fucking Dennis from It's Always. <laughs> oh, Glenn Hauser, yes. I, yeah, I, yeah. I completely forgot that he was in the first movie, and because he has like a really yeah. small scene, doesn't he? And he, he basically, I think he yeah. has like a, a, essentially the same amount of screen time in the sequel. Um, yeah, so in the first movie, yeah, Chev, uh, he, he's like a, a doctor or a male nurse or something. And Chev holds him up at gunpoint for various reasons. And then in this movie, we see him in therapy after the events <laughs> of the first movie. With his therapist being outrageously horny towards yeah, him. Yeah, I mean, what I wrote was down that some about? Of the dialogue. What I wrote was that down about? some of the dialogue. Also, can um, we appreciate that he was in therapy in his scrubs as well? 
Yes, he was. Yeah, just so we know it's the same guy. Yeah, so the therapist is telling him that he has to go out there and uh, you know experience life, by which she means having sex with a whore, which keeps saying. Uh, she says you got to get some stinky pussy in your face at one point. Um, to which he starts getting excited and responds with, I'm going to go out and floss my teeth with some pubes. Um, and this is something about the Crank universe, or so certainly as it's presented in Crank 2, is it is the most intensely horny and aggro universe in the world. Everyone is at full levels at all times. Like, everybody's, everybody's full mast and ready to fight people. Yeah. I mean, even the newsreaders in this universe, because, like, the movie starts with a news report about Chev Chelios falling from the sky, right? As he was battling the Mexican dude at the end of the first one. And, there's, and the news report ends with the guy saying, well, reports of a second body have been uh, filed by, you know, X amount of people. And he just goes, but we've dismissed it for the bullshit that it probably is. <laughs> those exact words. It's like... Everyone in this universe is just aggro to him. Because there's also a bit where two homosexuals are walking a dog in the park. And Chev approaches them to retrieve the shot collar to keep his heart going. And apropos of nothing, not even knowing that Chev is approaching them, but seeing just Chev in the park, one of the gay guys just goes, Oh, who's this asshole? <laughs> like... <laughs> oh, he just... I feel like his presence just, annou- it just announces itself. Like, I feel like... Have you ever seen Trigun? That anime Trigun. Yeah, yeah. He is yeah, literally yeah. what's his? Is it Vash the Dash of the Destroyer? Vash of the Destroyer? He's just that I, guy. I can't remember. Yeah, but the he, main guy from that. Yeah, he's yeah. just everywhere he goes, just destruction happens. Yeah, and, he's a shit magnet, as one character says to him later. And also, uh, one thing I, I've wanted to talk, point out as well is the amount of cameos in this movie. Because we mentioned Jerry yes. Halliwell earlier, which is just a weird as fuck cameo. Who as it is. briefly plays Chev Chelos's mum in a flashback question mark uh, or like some kind of weird fucked up fantasy sequence um we'll get to it because we'll we're to definitely going to discuss that soon but you mentioned the two gay guys in the park one of whom is played by um maynard james keenan who is the lead singer of tool yes so that was a there's weird also, surprise there's also a bizarre cameo at the racetrack from the late great chester bennington yeah who uh jason statham just has to rub up against to get some friction because yeah, and I want to, I want to know how these guys ended up getting roped into this movie. Because maybe they loved the first one. Possibly, I think it's a money thing. Because this is something else that I looked into. So we mentioned how fucking ugly and visually unappealing this movie is. I, yeah, I thought pur- purposefully so. I, yeah, it must have been purposeful. But also, I looked at the budget. So the first Crank movie was made for twelve million dollars. And that okay. movie doesn't look terrible. It's a bit rough around no. the edges, but it doesn't look terrible. This movie's budget was $20 million. Wow. They had $8 million more to play with, and somehow this movie was shot on the same sort of cameras that when we were film students that we were using. Well, you say for some reason. I know the exact reason. I did look because it up as well, but... It's because when they made the first one, they destroyed many, many cameras in the process. <laughs> oh, okay, I didn't know and that. And they did, they, they did on this one as well. So uh, they ended up filming this movie on the cheapest cameras they, they could that would produce a decent uh, quality. Uh, in see, this case, they like the SLRs. But, uh, yeah. See, I read that it was also because they wanted the most lightweight cameras that they could because not only did they have like a main DOP whose name is Brandon Trost, who part of me is like, you should never work again. This movie, <laughs> this movie is fucking ugly to look at. Um, but apparently the two directors also the writers and directors, they also manned cameras making this movie, and they wanted the most lightweight yeah. cameras they possibly could, because they wanted it to be constantly, like, kinetic and moving, and I'm like, 
that's fine. C- can you at least actually, you know, master the white balance button? <laughs> like, for the fucking love of God. Like, um, so many scenes in this movie are just, like, disgusting to look at. Because for a brief time, I was very much interested in cinematography and wanted to go down that path. And even though I don't really mm. do that much anymore, this movie upset me on a visual level. <laughs> it honestly upset me. To the point well, where yeah. it's it was detrimental to my enjoyment of it, despite the fact that I do think, despite how offensive and horrible and gross and unnecessary this movie is, <laughs> it's a fucking good time, and I really kind of hate how much I like it. I mean, yeah, it's. I, I think it's like it's. Yeah, it's deliberately kind of abrasive on every level, <laughs> including visual. Because um, I know what you mean the ed- to me of the. I could put up with the desaturated look and everything, but yeah, the the editing is what kind of makes this film so unhinged. Because as we say, like, there's no shot reverse shot kind of logic. It just kind of frenetically cuts between close up, watch up, close up, watch up. It's just like insane levels of. I mean, you're supposed to be kind of in the moment with with Jeb Jellias, I guess, as his you know electrified heart is going at a rate of knots. Um, we should probably try and explain some of what happens in this movie to people who haven't seen it. I think it's almost impossible to explain some of what happens in this movie. It's just a sequence of events where Chev basically runs into like gangsters or some other undesirables. They have a bit of a scrap. Yeah, because we should say there's there's a Mexican gang who are after him. There are the triads uh, as well. Partially, partially, so the Mexican gang want revenge on him for the events of the first movie because he killed one of. As it turns out, three brothers are all about the same name. He killed the two of the movie. three brothers, didn't he? Yeah, he, yeah, he killed two of them in the first movie. That's what, oh, yeah, that's right. And then, uh, yeah, the the ferret in this one is the third brother, um, which you don't really need to know. Can we just talk about the ferret for a second, though? Because that is one of the strangest performances in this movie. Ah, uh, yeah, the ferret who has a thing for making his henchmen cut off their own nipples. Yeah, I mean that that was the 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 Mark Smith role in this movie. If he wasn't Mexican. I think you would have played that role. I I would be honoured to play the ferret. I really I really would. <laughs> um, no, yeah, he's an interesting villain who is sort of mentioned early in the movie, but isn't really introduced until like over halfway through. And his introductory scene is where he makes that guy slice his nipples off. Which I have a slight funny story about that. Um, when yeah. I watched the other film for this episode, when I watched Jurassic Park three, um, after it finished, I just had a flicking through TV, and weirdly crank high voltage was on tv after i finished watching jurassic park 3 and as it should be and i was like well it's getting late i can't stay up and watch the whole movie but i'll flick it on quickly and just as i turned it on that dude was lopping his nipples off yeah it's a crazy scene that and it's just like just coming into that having just watched jurassic park 3 i was like what the fuck is this movie (laughs) and i finished watching it last night and i still have questions as to what the fuck is this movie yeah, to to be clear, for people who haven't seen it, the the ferret's henchman reports that they have failed to capture Chevchelios, to which the the ferret demands he cuts both his nipples off, in one go. <laughs> it's pretty brutal. And, and then that because char- that character is shirtless throughout the movie, so then later on you see him with just band aids over his nipples, which is probably my favourite like visual gag in the entire movie because it's just so stupid. Um, but, I mean, there's quite a, there's there's so much in this movie that's just like obscene. Well, I can give you some great examples of that. So, at the very beginning, when Chev's having his heart removed, one of the villains yeah. who I can't remember his name, he's the guy who's just lifted. It's just lifted straight out of his chest. Yeah, 
And also, he somehow doesn't kill him. He's shown to be alive, A, after they remove his heart, and B, conscious. He's literally staring at his own heart as it's like being held in front of him for some reason. They say in that scene he's a Superman. Yeah, they did. And I'm, after getting to the end of this movie, I'm inclined to believe it. Like, he is indestructible. Clearly, like, but so he's there having you know having just had his heart removed, and then they're gonna also mm. harvest the rest of his organs as well. And like yes. you said, they're gonna literally chop his cock off because apparently it's massive. I don't know if that was established in the first movie. I don't really remember it. But... Uh, I don't think so, but yeah, they definitely clearly established that uh, Poon Dong, the Chinese. <laughs> The wizened old Chinese man played by David Carradine, which freaks me the fuck out when I realised. <laughs> but then, so that happens within like the first couple of minutes, where like, yeah, he has his heart pulled out, and then they're gonna chop his dick off uh, because there's that um, uh, that nurse. I say nurse. Clearly, none of these people are qualified to be practicing medicine. <laughs> like, there's no way that any no. of them are qualified. But yeah, she comes in and like looks up his um, like hospital gown and calls him was it a big cock Englishman? She calls him. Yes, something and then, along those lines, yeah. And again, the editing is really weird. I'm not sure what she does. She either puts something up his piss hole or takes his temperature rectally, and I'm not sure which one it is. And it's very weird, and I didn't. it made me very uncomfortable. Uh, I've, yeah, I'm not entirely sure what that was. I thought she was injecting his ball sack or something. But... I, you can't tell what she's doing, because yeah. the editing is so chaotic. Yeah. Um, but then, so that happens about, what, three to four minutes into the actual fucking movie. Eight and a half minutes, well, no, eight minutes fifty, sorry, not eight and a half. I've heard back. Eight minutes fifty in. Jason Statham dips a shotgun in. <laughs> is it oil? Yeah, it's oil. In oil yeah. yeah, dips it in oil and shoves it up a guy's ass. Yes, to interrogate him. To interrogate, of course. Why that's your first thought is to anally rape a man with a shotgun. Well, this is Chev Chelios we're talking about. I mean, I know he's unhinged. unhinged. He, I mean, he is unhinged. This whole fucking movie's unhinged. But <laughs> why that's his go-to, I will never know. I mean, this movie clearly establishes he's a lifelong sociopath. Very true. So, you know, 15 minutes in, he loses his battery pack for his heart, <laughs> which is probably the closest this movie comes to actually having some kind of stakes outside of the, the electro heart. Um, yeah. He then gets a jump from these Mexican guys that are in a, is a low rider, those rich. Yes, and I want to talk about this, because he first of all is asking them for directions to um, what turns out to be a knocking shop. But um, he he pulls up next to them and he's asking them to direct. What what do they call it? They call it like the gentleman's club or something. Yeah, like that. there's like a social club. I think he calls it. The social club. Yeah, yeah. But it, but it turns out it's, it's like a knocking shop. Um, it's a big old whorehouse. Yeah, with with so many sex workers inside yeah. it. And when, when he pulls up, he's going, "Oh, can you point me towards the such and such social club?" The guy, the Mexican guy in the lowrider's like, "Nah, fuck that, Holmes. Let's race." <laughs> to which he replies. <laughs> Don't tempt me, fucker. <laughs> it's like, what? I love the fact that Chev would absolutely race these guys, but obviously he's yeah, got bigger if, things if on he his wasn't, mind. If he wasn't busy today, he'd absolutely drag race these <laughs> And I feel like with all the other bullshit that happens in this movie, we probably had time for a drag racing scene. We probably could have. <laughs> yeah. And do you know what? I'd have been fine with it. But then, even more bizarre than that, yes, you're quite right. He asks them for a jump, because uh, and, and, his car gets fucked over. And they, they think he's asking for jump leads to the car, but instead he attaches one of the leads to his nip, one to his tongue, and becomes supercharged by the super electricity. So he just runs the rest of the way. And then, upon reaching said knocking shop, liberates it, 
all of the prostitutes yeah. that work there are just fleeing out of this house as Chev, which we don't see because probably budget, because the rest of the budget went on disposable SLR cameras and, you know, celebrity cameos. And so he just liberates... And, and to be fair, we do see a lot of shootouts with nude women running around. That is very true. They do make good on this lack of knocking shop liberation that we uh, sort of <laughs> teased with at that scene. Um <laughs> What a fucking set. This movie, this fucking movie you got me to watch. Jesus Christ. Um, so yeah, he liberates the the sex workers and then he is... <laughs> he then meets what I've got in my notes here as the best and worst character in this movie. <laughs> I think the best character in all of cinema. <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> yeah, so this is Bai Ling's character, the aforementioned deranged uh, Asian prostitute. Her name's Rhea? Uh, Rhea in the movie, yeah. yes. Uh, I want to point something out about this. Um, so the directors of this movie, um, Mark Neveldine and Brian Taylor, uh, who are, you know, up there with the Coen brothers when it comes to directing duos. Um, they're... <laughs> I'm not even the biggest, like, fanboy of the Coens, and even I'm deeply offended by that statement. No, this is as good as anything the Coens have ever made. I mean, it is um... on the same level as Fargo, I guess. It made me laugh as much as Fargo does. Yeah, and this should have won Oscars as well. Um, but no, uh, yeah, so so Byling, the actress, uh, she's been in all sorts of things. She's in The Crow and, and all sorts of other stuff. Mm-hmm. But um, she is, uh, I don't know what the politically correct term is, but a mental case in real life. And um, yeah, basically the directors of this, uh, Neville Dean and Taylor, basically said that like she just made up her own dialogue, pretty much. Like They had written lines for this character that she refused to say. <laughs> I just came up with any old shit. Which so probably explains why her character has subtitles, despite the fact that she spe- she's speaking English. She's speaking very broken yeah. English, admittedly. Yeah, and she's just shrieking any old nonsense. And because there are parts where the subtitles don't even bother to translate what she's saying. That's <laughs> very true, actually. And and she's just throwing slurs around all over the place and yeah, constantly yeah. just trying to get all on Chev's dick and. She's an exhausting calling him, Kevin, calling him Kevin Costner. Kevin Costner. Because <laughs> she becomes attached to Chev because he saves her from the life of prostitution. Um, Inadvertently. Chev any, how, yeah, Chev, yeah, but as a side product of his rampage, yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know, Chev isn't having any of that because he's already got a woman, as we know from the first movie, which I'm sure we all remember perfectly well. And, yes. Um, so that's, uh, uh, it says Eve? Eve, played by Amy Smart, yeah. I just Who... want to give a little shout-out to Amy Smart, actually. She's one of those actresses that she doesn't really crop up in much, but I've always just thought she's a, a really great performer, especially in, like, comedy roles as well. And I think yeah, she's, she's kind she of is perfect great, for Eve. And she is great, and um, God love her for throwing her dignity to the wind twice for these movies. Um, <sighs> yeah. Because... Both of these movies feature a scene where Jason Statham has to fuck her so hard his heart comes back to life. Um, the first movie plays it kind of for dark comedy, whereas this movie just plays it for out and out TNA pretty much. It's... And then it goes it goes beyond that to absolute absurdity. But um, we'll get to that in a moment because he meets so he meets Eve. She's stripping in well a strip club that he happens to go to. And they have a brilliant exchange where it turns out she's just didn't get his because yeah, there's a bit later on right after he gets her out of the strip club and everything where she's he's like 
I called you, didn't you get my message? And then it cuts to her answer phone, and it's just like garbled nonsense. Because <laughs> obviously he's falling from the plane yeah, in the first movie. He's fall- he caught her while he was falling from a plane. But in fairness to Eve, she's pretty fucking ride or die for Chev. That's like, true, like, she's up for it. You know? She, I mean, to be fair, the quality of man that she's dealing with outside of Chev is not great. Very true. That guy, I... that, that guy who runs the, the strip club, or who just put her in the strip club, he's a piece of work. Uh, yeah, she is very ride or die for, for Chev, and I, you know, most, I'm assuming it's not just for his loving, warm personality, or the, the massive load of shmeat he's packing. He must it's have other qualities. Const- it's the constant public dickings. She's just into <laughs> She's it. clearly well into it. Like, I mean, that's this is right. That's an outrageous scene. So there's, oh my god. I mean, I don't even know how to describe this movie to people who haven't seen it. <laughs> so one of Chev's mates is uh, a doctor, allegedly. Doc, uh, I mean, is it, as you call them? Yeah, this is Dwight Dwight Yoakam's character. Yeah, they call him Doc Miles. Um, I think he was in the first one. I can't remember. He is. He is. Um, I. I I will admit, I haven't seen the first one in a very, very long time. However, uh, I read a summary on Wikipedia earlier. Nice. Um, yeah, so anyway, yeah, so, so the setup for this scene with Eve at the racetrack is that Chev calls Doc Miles explaining the his his replacement heart, which Doc Miles knows all about, and it segues into a brilliant animated section about the... the it, it goes like like a public information film about the replacement heart. It's so good. And the, <laughs> I mean, this is one of those films where we're not going to get much insightful commentary. It's just going to be me laughing at all the bits that I find hilarious. But um, yeah, anyway, the point is this. He's got to generate some friction to keep this, this heart going. And if you've seen the first one, you know where this is going. He's going to have to shag uh, Amy Smart until the friction gets his heart going. But before that, he rubs up on Chester Bennington, who happens to be at the racetrack. He starts molesting an old woman. Yeah. Um, I'm, I just, I'm, just, I'm just flabbergasted by the things that happen in this movie. <laughs> yeah. And the funniest part of all that, and this is, Amy Smart sells this so well, is when she just comes in and is like, Oh, friction. Oh, I know what we need to do. Because she remembers the first movie. So, they start dry humping, and then they start wet humping. Much to the enjoyment of the horse racing crowd, I might add. And may we also point out that there are horses racing on the track where they're just raw-dogging. Yeah, because one of them jumps over them whilst they're having sex. (laughs) With the most graphic close-up of a horse cock I have ever seen in a movie. And I've seen and love Freddy Got Fingered, okay? And it's implied that Amy Smart comes because she sees the horse cock. Because I'm guessing it reminds her of Chev. I hope so. Because <laughs> if not... That's an issue. But there are many issues in this movie, and the fact that Eve might massively be into bestiality is not the most disgusting and offensive thing that happens. Yeah, shockingly. <laughs> shockingly. The- I mean, that scene is, is it's next level, that scene. It's fucking, it's one of the most graphic scenes of raw dogging I've seen in a, in a, in a mainstream. I am film. pretty confident you see Jason Statham's arsehole for like a split second. I am confident oh, you definitely that happens. Do. You definitely do. I mean, they pixel out his, his knob. They do, which is kind of weird. <laughs> they like pixelate out it during like, because that scene is so graphic. 
It's still really like, uh, admittedly, like it's really. I, I ridiculous. assume it's, I assume it's pixeled out because it's actually covered. On the yeah, set. they're they're probably both wearing yeah. Birkins. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. But considering how graphic that scene is, um, yeah, and even though it, it rolls straight back around to being completely absurd as well, because like there's there's yeah, because nothing... like people th- like guy throws him a fucking cowboy hat. <laughs> And Amy Smart throws her knickers into the audience, and some Asian guy just grabs them and snips them. <laughs> does this it is just, what I mean. This does this it film, just feel it, like this film was written by like teenagers? It's oh, like mate, yeah. One of my notes is this film reeks of Axe body spray. <laughs> it just like, seeps out so, the screen. Every single scene in this movie is tailor made to be as obnoxious as possible. And I think that's what I like about it. Is it's just it's cranked up so much. Well, it's cranked up so much that it's 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 unbelievable. Like the first movie is pretty unhinged. Like the first movie is the kind of thing where people went, Have you seen this movie? You'll never believe this shit, right? And they know that that's the audience they've got for the second movie by the time it rolls around. So they just went for it. Every scene it there is no time to breathe in this movie. God, no. There are no quiet conversation scenes. And even, I mean, there's a few conversation scenes, but even they have absolutely absurd dialogue in them. Or the I characters mean, are doing lurid shit. Like, any time where, like, um, Chev is on the phone to Doc, Doc is with his lover, uh, Dark Chocolate, I believe her name is. Yes, which, Chocolate. Yeah. That's a whole thing. Um, you and- may be able to guess from that name, listeners, she is uh, not white. Yes, and uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, isn't it like when he's on the phone, he's just like constantly just like rubbing her ass, um, yeah, while she's just, like spank, spanking and grabbing her ass yeah. while she's just playing Mortal Kombat. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, we all know what the best dialogue scene in this movie is. It's the scene where uh, Chev's mate from the first one, a Chinese gangster, uh, yes. <laughs> you know what's coming because you know there's an audio drop coming. <laughs> Spoilers. <laughs> But, um, yeah, so, okay, we should we should reel back a little bit before we get to the best line in cinema history. So, along the way, Chev meets a gentleman by the name of Venus, played by Efren Ramirez, who's probably best known to audiences as Pedro from Napoleon Dynamite. Oh my um, god, that is him, isn't it? Yes. He was also in the first crank, playing the identical brother of Venus, who was uh, unfortunately killed. Anyway, the point is this. Venus is a homosexual. Uh, he is also someone who suffers from FBT, full body Tourette's. Now, is this a sensitive portrayal of mental illness, would you say? Oh, no. This film is deeply offensive to those <laughs> who suffer from neurological conditions. I... Yeah. I, I do appreciate that it's just openly a, uh, it's openly an excuse for things to just go wrong. Like, whenever he's in an action scene, he just starts... He has his tics. He has his tics, yeah. Yes, his full body ticks. It's just it's openly just a plot excuse for him not to get one over on the bad guys repeatedly throughout the movie. And to the point where they they run that fucking joke into the ground towards the Oh, end. they really do. They really do. <laughs> like they you can but, imagine the two guys that wrote it just like sniggering to themselves, going like, Oh, he'll just like have a tick and they just they just keep using it. Uh yes. So it shows up in a, an inopportune moment when uh they are rescued from a, a another gang fight. By a gentleman by the name of Don Kim, who appears in the first one, uh, a Chinese gangster. Um, unfortunately for Venus, he has his full body spasms and lands in the crotch of one of the Chinese gangsters, 
who then promptly throws him from the limousine that uh, they've just pulled him and Chev into, which prompts this line. Your friend has the gay condition. (laughs) (laughs) Which I move, we use as an audio drop for the rest of the series, whenever either of us makes an accidental, accidental homosexual innuendo. I fully support this notion. Let us know in the comments if you do too, or if this is grossly <laughs> offensive, much like Crank 2 is. We'll probably still do it anyway. Hey, this podcast's already grossly offensive. You heard some <laughs> of the things we've said. Hey, we cut that stuff out. Going back to the plot of the movie, um, after this really over-the-top fucking scene, sex scene, love scene, whatever you want to call it, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stick with fucking scene, um... Where do they go from there? Because well, like Amy Smart gets picked up by the police and Chev continues to go on a rampage. Because the guy the guy he thinks has his heart is the, the Chinese fella is is at the racetrack. Yeah. I think it I think it leads hang on. I think it leads pretty much directly into the scene that I was just describing where they get into a shootout and then some stuff happens. It's hard to remember what really happens in what order in this movie because it's not so much, as you say, it's not so much a plot as a series of increasingly insane events. Yeah, because he then catches up with the guy who's got his heart. Yes. And there is then this scene... Well, that he thinks has his heart. Well, he thinks has his heart, yeah. And then it leads to possibly the most baffling scene of the entire movie. And trust me when I say there are many baffling scenes. Mm. Where, so if I remember correctly... The dude who's supposedly got Chev's heart kicks him into a power grid or like an yes. electricity box, which yes, then they're, they're, they're supercharges fighting, they're him. Fighting in, uh, yeah, they're fighting in some fucking electric power grid or something like that. It's like a power station. Yeah, yeah. Like a power station, yeah. Which just so happens to be, you know, round the corner from the racetrack because geography does not matter in this movie. No. Yeah, and so It's just there. It's just that, yeah. Like, yeah, the the geography of this location, this undisclosed location, just doesn't make any sense. Um, so they go to this power station, start having a fight. Chev gets kicked into like a power box or whatever you want to call it, and yes. then becomes supercharged to the point where lightning shoots out of him, and then it turns into a kaiju movie. Yeah, for some reason, it turns into a kaiju movie with guys in rubber suits of Jason Statham and the Chinese fellow, and it happens. And they just have a bit of a scrap and, you know, throw each other around a really poorly made miniature set of the power station. And this goes on for a couple of minutes. It's not entirely clear if that happens in reality or not either. It's just... Uh, and that's the point where, to the like, for the movie, I was like, right, okay, we've gone full maximum ridiculous now. There's I mean, kind of no coming back from I that. like the fact that he takes the, the icebox that supposedly contains his heart, looks inside it, and it turns out it doesn't contain his heart. We never actually find out what it contains, but it's enough to make Chev, uh, well, he, he balks at whatever's in there and tells the Chinese guy uh, he's sick, he has psychological problems. Yeah, and, and honestly, in, I'm surprised they don't go as far as showing us what was in that cooler, because obviously the, mov- the movie goes out of its way to be disgusting and wrong. <laughs> I think, wrong and I think that's what gets me about it, is like, what could possibly be in there that, <laughs> that this movie wouldn't show it? Yeah, like, there's clearly that's a low this movie won't sink to, and I didn't think that was possible. Also, I've got to give props to a movie that will basically waste the audience's time to that extent, where it's pretty clearly <laughs> established this guy has Chev's heart, and then he just doesn't. 
Yeah, it just gives them the runaround, like this movie does to its audience. Yeah, most of the most of the Chinese gangster stuff is is irrelevant to where Chow's heart actually is. Because it's inside David Carradine's character, and he's out trying to score hookers. Yeah, and he's not really relevant to the plot either, as it's worth pointing out. No, he he's only in it for maybe, what, a couple of minutes? Yeah. And then towards the end, obviously we're going a bit ahead of ourselves, but like, so... Uh, he ends up getting. He ends up picking up chocolate. Who then takes? Who then takes? Was it Poon Dong? Is that his name or Poon Dong? Yes, yes, Poon Dong. Yeah. So she just takes Poon Dong back to Doc's house, where off screen he is clearly murdered and has his new heart removed. Because <laughs> not only is Doc an ex heart surgeon and Chev's friend, he's also a murderer. Yeah. Well, we know the reason he got struck off from being a heart surgeon is he tried to help his. I, I assume former wife with her, her quote unquote vaginal regeneration and it went what and it went wrong so I don't know why a heart doctor's doing that for a start but for <laughs> it's a, like, that's some Hedvig and the Angry Inch territory that's what it that is. really is I mean I, I want the spin off about Doc to be honest and his crazy life I mean one of the best lines in this movie is when he tells Chocolate to get off her fat ass and get hit the streets uh, she refuses. He just goes, "Is Dog Miles gonna have to choke a bitch?" <laughs> Which shouldn't be funny. But it it should not is. be funny. It shouldn't be funny. The deadpan um, tone that Dwight Yoakam delivers that line in is incredible. But I do want to point one thing out before we get into talking about the ending, because the ending is where the movie, in my opinion, becomes truly, truly ridiculous and stupid. Yeah even by my standards, um, is that we mentioned like the kaiju bit as well, and it's really kind of obvious throughout most of the movie that they're really trying to like ape video games. And mm. I was watching this film with my housemate, uh, who, may I point out, did not care for it. Well, he's wrong. Really, really didn't care for it. Um, he's, he's simply wrong. But at one point during watching it, I could see him getting frustrated with it, and he just asked me, is this supposed to be satire? And I thought about it for a minute, and I went, no, because there's nothing going on <laughs> beneath the surface-level <laughs> nonsense that we're seeing. Like, there is no core think, to this I movie. think it exists just to provoke that reaction. I think it's just trying to... It's so... Like I say, it's, this film is obnoxious. Deliberate. Yeah, I mean, I did... I did kind of, for a brief time, entertain the notion that maybe it was trying to satirize because like the video game mo- motif is really rife throughout this entire film. Like it starts yeah. with like that eight bit reconstruction of the uh, the finale of the first movie. Yeah. The uh, the title card for the movie is done in an intentionally retro video game style. Yeah. The whole movie is very Grand Theft Auto, mm. like down to the the side characters and all that kind of stuff. It's clearly aping that stuff. To no real end, which is kind of frustrating in my eyes. But again, I still do enjoy this movie. I'm ragging on it. A but it's this thing. I don't. I did yeah, it. I see what you're saying, but I don't think it's supposed to have anything going on. It's just a mishmash of stuff. Because as we've said, yeah, it's parodying the video games and all this kind of stuff, and that's definitely part of it. But then it also does stuff like when we see a sort of fantasy scene slash flashback to Chev's childhood. It's inexplicably a parody of uh, like the Jeremy Kyle show. Uh, Yeah, and it's explicitly the Jeremy Carl show as well because everyone has (coughs) British accents, Um, and that's fucking incredible for a start. Where yeah, so we have a a scene where because Chev gets knocked out 
And then yeah, we... this this is actually what brings us to the finale of the movie because yeah. he gets captured. Yes, and um, yeah, we see a flashback to him and his mum, played by Jerry Halliwell, on the for some reason Jerry Halliwell. I can't get over this <laughs> on a kind of knockoff of the Jeremy Kyle show, and it just kind of shows that he's always been a deranged little kitten. Like, um, like, how did a Spice Girl birth Jason Statham? I just don't get it. We'll never know. We'll never know. Yeah, it's just kind of a grab bag of stuff. Like, there's a scene where, you know, unfortunately, Ron Jeremy's in this movie, because there's a cameo of... Well, he, he cameo... There's, there's a scene of, like, they get held up by uh, all these porn actors who are protesting their pay, which I think was happening at the time. Yeah, I feel like that's definitely got its basis in something, because that feels too specific to have just been, like, pulled out of film. Yeah. I mean, that's... Also, and also because nothing comes of it as well. Nothing really comes yeah, of that scene. It's just, it's just a way for them to be held up in traffic. Um, and to just go, hey, look, porn actors. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, because there's... Yeah, unfortunately, Ron Jeremy, and there's a couple of other people who I didn't recognise, but they're... Um, yeah, one girl gets on the hood of the car and, of course, starts shaking her tits about... Uh, one of the other male porn stars is going on about how he's going to fuck the girl in the back of the car. <laughs> And yeah, then start yeah, saying, yeah. Let's start screaming, do you want me to fuck this car? Do you want me to fuck this car? Isn't that also the same scene where the other like stripper or hooker, not really sure who she is, yes. is in the back seat of the car with Eve and is just assaulting Eve for the entire yeah, scene? It's, it's tr- yeah, it's super horny about everything that's occurring and is trying to get into Eve's pants with, by force. And, and it's just so blasé about it as well. Like, the. It's even Eve's, Eve's reactions to it. She's not like truly terrified or aggressive. She's just like, "Oh, just leave me alone," like, just pushing her away. She does. She does knock her out effort. eventually. She does. Yeah, she does. Well, after the woman uh, removes her handcuffs, you know yeah. that that woman does actually serve something of a purpose to the plot. There is no purpose to the plot in this movie. What are you talk about? Nothing serves any purpose other than to be the next demented scene in this unhinged saga this shakespearean drama well to try and actually like put a cap on the 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 story of this movie if we can because the shakespearean drama this movie i mean you could argue this movie is in acts each one ending with uh chev having to juice himself up in increasingly more ludicrous ways this is a saga of family of revenge of blatant racism it's definitely a saga, is what I'll say. <laughs> for, for a movie that is about 80 minutes without the credits, God, it feels and, long. And the fucking credits as well. Those credits go on for an eternity. Yeah, there's like a solid 10 minutes of credits or something at the end. Intercut with really shit bloopers, may I point out. Yeah, shit bloopers, yeah. Not even and, good. I also read as well, apparently they shot nearly 300 hours worth of footage for this movie. How? How did also, they shoot that much And more to the point, why? <laughs> yeah, why? Why? Like, you had $20 million. You could have done anything else. <laughs> no, they shouldn't have done anything else because Crank 2 is a masterpiece. <laughs> I mean, we should probably talk about this movie in a more critical sense. We've just been yelling about the things that occur in it. Which, which but Aiden, that's all we ever do. <laughs> I know. But sometimes we get a little deeper. I want well, to know, yeah. Mark, in, Crank 2 is a piece of art. Um, where, 
how did this piece of art... I mean, with Criteria, it's not really relevant to say how did this piece of art affect you. It's more like, where did this piece of art touch you on the doll? <laughs> um, <laughs> um, in my no-no places. Um, yeah. But I wasn't mad about it. So... Mm. Well, well like, what I'm getting at is, did you like this movie, Mark? Begrudgingly, yes. Yeah. Begrudgingly. Um... I would like to point out that I had seen bits of it before. I'd never seen the entire movie. This is the first time I seen it from beginning to end. I'd seen the the shotgun rape, I'd seen that, um, and I'd seen Rhea's introduction because that happens quite soon after that. So I saw like a sort of fifteen twenty minute chunk of the movie. But I always remembered those scenes, as you can imagine. Mm. Um, it's a memorable. What film. I will say, yeah, exactly. And what I will say is like I enjoyed it because I love trash i love this particular kind of trash i like stuff that's very um edgy is not really the word because this has gone so far beyond the idea of being edgy i think it's just it's so crass and like so unapologetically vile yeah and i definitely kind of vibe with stuff like that i think it's kind of Um, one of those things where it's like it's hard to even take it seriously as like offensive material because it's so yeah it's so it's so far beyond the pale yeah Yeah, it's it's so far beyond and it and it also it's offensive to pretty much everyone so therefore i feel like that cancels itself out because it's just so unpleasant and i think the film film also does go to lengths to show that like chev chelios is a piece of shit like oh yeah he's racist he's homophobic like Like, that's the theme of the movie as much as they're also like ah he's got a big dick and all the rest of it like he is a piece of shit. Like, that is made clear in the movie. Yeah, I like the fact that he's not shown to be a protagonist that anyone could possibly idolise as well, because you I mean, get that a lot with these The last of shot of the movie is literally Chev flipping the audience off. Which I think is very indicative of the filmmaker's intentions. Yes. Um, but like, to put a slightly, like, like, to sort of put more of a critical eye on it, um, one thing I'll say is, like, the performances in this movie are... They're, they're dedicated. Like, everybody yes. that is in this movie clearly gets the material yeah they know what movie Jason... they're in i mean half of them are in the yeah. first one so exactly yeah yeah uh but what i will say is i think this is probably my favorite performance by jason statham yeah. in anything yeah. because he's just so committed to the part and well he's always been better at comedy than than straight drama i think very true like he is good in like snatch i think like he's yeah. good in that yeah. but he he doesn't he can't, he's very one level in that movie whereas here he gets quite a broad range of things to do and some of the stuff they get him doing in this movie yeah it's fucking questionable again like that scene with him and uh, Amy Smart shagging at the race course is just ludicrous like can you imagine as like you know as we do we have made movies before like can you imagine directing actors to do that no only in my wildest dreams um, <laughs> one thing actually we do need to address Speaking of this movie's representation of groups of people, as an open and proud member of the LGBT community, Mark. Your friend has the gay condition. <laughs> um, how did you feel their representation of gay biker gangs was? Um, Accurate to your experience? <laughs> wow, okay, I'm fully being targeted in this, aren't I? Um... I mean, let's put it this way. Nobody gets 
well represented in this movie. Nobody. I However, think, I think I, the, ga- the gays save the day. They're the cavalry at the end. They, the gays do, but also so do the strippers and yes. all these like you know minority groups that have not been. I wouldn't say personally victimized by Chev as such. No, but by the gangs. But like his, yeah, yeah his actions have led has like caused harm to them, much in the same way you know a lot of straight white males do cause that anyway. Um, mm, yes, that is, that is that definitely the point that Crank Two was making. <laughs> No, I'm not going to even try and apply any kind of. No, I think you should. I think you should. Let's let's do this. The end of the movie is semiotically representing the uh, the, well, the the underclasses of this crime-infested city. No, one one bit I do love is that when uh, Venus is on the phone to his uh, gay black biker friends, um, you see the fetish club they're in, and it is some unhinged shit is happening, and uh, like there's just a guy being led around on a lead getting like beating up basically and uh, there's a great line where the guy on the phone is like oh yeah we look after our own we're a family we may be a freaky ass family but we're still a family i, I like that line a lot actually and then was really the gay, it was quite sweet the gay bikers and the uh yeah the asian hookers do show up at the end to as the cavalry they save chev kind of they do yeah and you know they kind of reclaim the city as it were and i that's kind of like weirdly nice yeah they they reclaim they reclaim the city from the uh, mexican mob question mark one of whom one of whom is a head in a jar who is this is what i wanted to point out who is only being kept alive so that he can watch his brother whip chev chelios to death (laughs) because that's something else that happens in this fucking movie yes the guy who fell out the plane it was foreshadowed when they said a second body survived um, yes, they use Chev's special heart to keep. No, they don't, do they? Because they give the heart no, to Long Dong no, no, Fuck just... or whatever he's called. <laughs> no, no, they just keep the the main antagonist yeah. in the first movie. So His the head heart... is alive, just in a tank. That's that's completely right. Yeah, how could I forget? Yeah, because um, yes, yes, David Carradine has the heart, making the whole heart plot line completely irrelevant. <laughs> oh, so just his heart is retrieved off screen. <laughs> By chocolate, yeah. Chocolate is the one that finds his heart. And he never gets it back because, well, he gets supercharged by electricity at the end so he can kill all the bad guys. But he's on fire. Very unconvincingly, may I point out. No, it looks true me. And then he it's, sees... It's, oh, no, it's one of those things. Modern film has this weird fascination with shit, cheap-looking yeah, yeah, no, CGI fire, and it's always, always terrible. But can we talk about the ending where he's on fire hallucinates Amy Smart, but actually it's uh, Bai Ling's character stood there. And they... Well, he, he forcibly makes out with her, flips off the camera, and then that's your movie, right? Like there's... We, we also forget to point out that he forcibly makes out with uh, Rhea, but also sets her on fire in, yeah, the, in, process, in the process, yeah. seemingly killing her, yeah. and then flips off the audience. Because... If anything, that's uh, you know you know the term a fuck you ending. Yes, it's like a literal case here. This is a fuck you then, movie. Yeah, but then over the end credits, there is this scene that plays out showing uh, Chev's heavily charred, heavily bandaged corpse yes. as Doc removes the electric electric heart and puts in his original heart, and it looks like he's not made it, and he's crying, and like weirdly. D- dark and serious that scene as well like yes. the, the actual surgery is really icky and yeah it's grim really gross looking um and then we properly end on the bombshell that 
Chev's alive. Because of course he is. Yeah, because they have threatened to make Crank 3 for a while. But I guess given the... Because this movie didn't make as much money as the first one did. Um, Because I've got the figures up here, actually. So I can actually... So, so budget was twenty million. The movie made thirty four point six. So I'm assuming the twenty million in the budget there is not accounting for marketing and stuff no, like yeah, that and distribution. Yeah. So likely this movie didn't really make any money, and probably because I imagine bad word of mouth. Yeah, well that's the thing. You say bad word of mouth, but it's got to a point where this movie is definitely a cult favorite. Like I feel like every bad or weird movie podcast covers Crank Two at some point. So it has the, it has a life of its own outside of the Crank franchise. And in my experience, I think more people have affection for this one than they do the first one. Yeah, because no one remembers the first one. If you talk to people about the Crank movies, it's always going to be Crank 2. Because yeah, it is just so ridiculous and puerile and stupid and offensive. And there's many, many more words I can use to describe this movie, uh, which I begrudgingly really liked. I think it's... Yeah, I mean... We're getting, okay, let's get into it now then. Kino or the Inferno for Crank 2? The electricity induced Inferno. <laughs> I like that. Um, I feel like I'm going to have to. I feel like I can't, in good consciousness, give this movie Kino. However. It feels wrong, doesn't it? It feels very wrong. I feel like it's very wrong for me to give this movie Kino. But at the same time, I can't give it an Inferno because I just enjoyed it too much. I, I think, had too much fun with it. I think what it is, right? I think this can be the official line of the podcast if you agree with this. We put Crank 2 in the Inferno, but it called us a cunt and kicked its way into Kino. Yeah, I think, yeah, let's go with that. Because I can't, I can't willingly give it either because there's... There are so many elements about it that I absolutely dislike and want to burn it for, but at the same time, there's so much about it that I like and I want to keep I it. Think I think it, it, wanna... it would refuse the burning. We couldn't put it if It would, yeah. Okay. And, and it's the sort of film as well where we talked you know, last week about uh, like Mystics in Bali, for example, and it's mm. a very similar kind of movie to me in the sense like this is the kind of movie you watch with a group of friends yeah. uh, because yeah, it's, it's so ridiculous. It's a movie which primarily exists so you can go, can you believe this shit? You could yeah, show it to other people. Really... Yeah. And honestly, I feel like it's you don't really get a lot of movies like that these days, or at least I haven't seen any movies like that for quite some time. Where I've seen something that's like genuinely kind of shocking. And I think the, you know, the closest the thing top. I've seen to that recently, this was less shocking and more just kind of absurd, was uh, Psycho Gorman. I haven't seen that yet. I've wanted to. I think the only other example that I can think of, which I've still not properly seen, I've seen a bit of it, is uh, the Greasy Strangler. Yeah, I've not seen that yet. Actually, I need. I want to watch that. Yeah. It's, that's that film's very John Waters though. I would say it's cl- it's deliberately going for the John Waters vibe. Yeah, whereas, whereas Psycho Gorman going, is yeah, Psycho Gorman is more like um, like unhinged Power Rangers almost. Yeah, which how that's not won Oscars, I don't know. It fucking should. Anyone who's listening to this, forget about Crank Two. Just watch Psycho Gorman. Double bill, double bill him. You don't I need mean, to watch Crank One. We've already established this. Watch Psycho Gorman and treat Crank Two as a sequel to that. Yes, hard agree. Um. But yeah, well, before we move on to Jurassic Park 3, I just want to say, yeah, Crank 2 is one of those movies where we touched on this in one of the Getting to Know You episodes, but in all in all good consciousness, in all my reasonable faculties, when I watch this movie, I know on almost every level this is a terrible movie. And I don't just mean in the way that it's put together, although that is part of it. I don't just mean in the aggressively 
2000s rock soundtrack. The the janky editing, the terrible cinematography, the frankly quite poor acting for the most part. Um, Aside from Statham and Amy Smart, I, I, think, I would say okay, I would say actually to be great. fair, I think most of the actors are being terrible on purpose. They know what movie they're in, but um, I I also think a lot of the actors like didn't natively speak English. Yes, I, I mean I, I, yeah, there's definitely some Chinese accents in this that are put on. Yeah, <laughs> because they're like unhinged. Yeah, but um, what I will say is this: Yeah, it's a terrible movie. Not just in the way it's put together, but in the attitudes it represents. I think this movie is bad for society. Is what I'm saying. Yeah, I uh, think this, bad for your brain. The world would be a better place if this movie didn't exist. <laughs> However, there is something about it that is. Very funny to me. And just knowing the kind of, like, the rough and tumble way in which it was made. Um, I mean, you can just watch it and you can tell that, like, half these people are just people the directors knew. And there's just something about that that is so fun to me whenever you watch a movie that's just, like, barely held together with gaffer tape that I kind of find entertaining. And I wouldn't want every movie to be like this. But No, not at all. Every so often... I'm in the mood for a movie like this, and I'm glad that Crank 2 exists to scratch that it's, itch. It's grot of the highest order, I think. It is grot. It's grumble. It's grot. It's filth. It should be banned for the good <laughs> of the kids on the streets. I mean, it's honestly amazing to me this movie was made in the year 2009. Do you know what? It's, because... not, it's not that amazing to me, because the 2000s were a time of... Uh, we think of them as more politically correct than they are, I think. I guess it's because, yeah, it was only just over a decade ago, but yeah. it's so weird to think that, you know, that long ago you're getting a movie where Jason Statham is so openly, you know, using the word faggot and stuff like that. But I think the thing Which... is, though, is it's very indicative of the time in the sense that, like, a lot of comedy, especially at that time, was being, like, edgy and, oh, it's not politically correct and, like, that kind of thing. Which you still get today, but I think people don't care for it as much today. Whereas back then no. it was kind of seen as rebellious to be, like... Ah, we're saying naughty words. Which this movie definitely does a lot. <laughs> well, I, I mean, I just love the fact that the majority of Statham's dialogue in this is just him saying fuck or can't. Can't. Um, there's even just a bit where, out of nowhere, he tries to slide down a railing and cracks his nuts into the pole and just, uh, just screams obscenities <laughs> for no reason. Yeah. Well, that's... There's no reason for that to happen. Well, that's Crank too. Hopefully the listeners could make sense of that summary slash review <laughs> we were mostly just yelling about things that we couldn't believe were in a movie um and that's the magic of crank 2 to be honest with you it's not good it's not and as i've said i want to be clear i don't just mean in terms of quality it's not morally good this film is morally wrong <laughs> it's bad for society but you should definitely watch it Oh, you should absolutely watch it, just to say yeah. you've seen it. So, in summary, Mark, Crank 2, sort of Kino on a technicality, a movie held together by gaffer tape and directed by Nuts Magazine. <laughs> I want to know, and I'm pretty confident I already know, I'm pretty sure this got a five stars from Nuts Magazine, didn't it? I mean, we can Google it in real time. And probably Zoo Magazine, if you remember Zoo. Or was they the same magazine? No, they were. I think they were sister mags. Yeah, I remember those just grotty lads mags. Ugh. Loaded. Lads. Ugh. 
or my preference at the time, Front. <laughs> I don't remember Front. Which one was that? That was like the alternative cool kids lads mag. That um, it was like basically it was girls with tattoos with the tits out. Oh, uh, okay. It was like a, sort of suicide girls vibes. Uh, kind of, yeah. Maybe a yeah. bit more hipster than goth, I would say. Okay. But um, yeah, it, it tried to be cool because like it also reviewed like punk bands and stuff, like alternative underground rock bands and shit. But basically, it was just the same shit. <laughs> the less, just... uh, yeah, less look zoo magazine. Because I don't feel like the, the the film critics working at Nuts or Zoo would take offence to any of the content in this movie. No, they'd encourage it. I can't find a review for from Zoo magazine, but if anyone can find that... It'll be the listeners. The <laughs> let us know in the comments. Do, do a little you... deep dive into the grot that is Nuts do magazine. Do a little deep dive into Nuts or Zoo magazine. <laughs> That's the the that's the advice of film critic and what culture contributor. <laughs> every fucking time, every time. <laughs> just every time you say something sus, I want to just drop what culture. In. <laughs> so, Aiden, we've yes. we've talked about a movie in which Jason Statham has his bare testicles tasered and shags a woman on a race course. Do you want to talk about some dinosaurs? Are they going to get their balls tasered? Let's find out. Multiple specimens that we can determine the exciting correlation between the upper palate and the larynx. This lets us theorize, theorize, mind you, that the raptor was capable of uh, sophisticated vocalizations, which would have been a tremendous evolutionary advantage. After his absence from the previous sequel, Dr. Alan Grant is once again thrown headfirst into a land of dinosaurs when he's hoodwinked into a search and rescue mission to Isla Sauna, which was once a testing ground for the genetic engineering that led to Jurassic Park's creation. Almost immediately after arriving at Isla Sauna, Dr. Grant and the rest of his party are besieged by dinosaurs and must try to find a way off the island before they're ripped to shreds by the local wildlife. Now, I know that's a very brief summary of Jurassic Park 3, but we should also mention that there is not really much going on in the plot department in Jurassic Park 3. No, no, not at all. That is literally the plot. Yeah, yeah. They just, they go to the land of dinosaurs and, well, they, they fuck around and find out. Yeah, I mean, it is, um, yeah, I mean, that's basically it. They rope Dr. Grant into going back to a, a different dinosaur island. The one that's from The Lost World, I believe. So I'm not overly familiar with The Lost World. I've maybe seen it once or twice and I don't really care Yeah, for it. it's not very good. Um, but yeah, so yeah, in the Lost World, it's revealed there's another like InGen has another dinosaur island, uh, other than the first dinosaur island, and the dinosaurs run amok. So this movie so is about the... Alan Grant going to the second dinosaur island to rescue. Yeah, a because boy. apparently, because he went to the first dinosaur island, he's like some kind of expert. Even though he is like an expert on dinosaurs, well, anyway, yeah. like that's yeah. kind of his. This, that's his thing. But he thinks um, he's going to do a tour for some rich people. But it turns out they're looking for their son. Yeah, so, okay, so instantly, right, I want to just sort of, before we get into talking about the what goes on in the movie, um, Jurassic Park 3, the reason I chose this was because, I don't know, I've always really liked this movie, and I know a lot of people that do, but I've also just seen like a lot of reviews that really bash it, mm. and I'm always kind of perplexed by that, because I'm like, this movie very much knows what the audience wants, 
and just gives it to you by the bucket load. It's like, oh, you want dinosaurs? And we'll give you fucking dinosaurs. And it just gives you dinosaurs repeatedly in every yeah, office. I, well, I will say, um, watching it again uh, yesterday for the pod, I will say I was quite bored by the second act. The, okay. I didn't mind the movie, and my memory of the movie was fairly positive before I watched it again. But um, definitely, I, I mean, it's not a very long movie, but I definitely kind of was... Um, I wouldn't say I was on the edge of my seat throughout. <laughs> no, I mean, I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to say this movie's perfect, because obviously, you know, it's not the best Jurassic Park movie, because, you know, the original Jurassic Park exists and will forever mm. be the best Jurassic Park movie. Um, it, does, it does contain I a do perfect all... scene. Alan. We'll get there. <laughs> Mark can't recover from... I really, really, like, just want to dive headfirst in and talk about that. But I feel like we need to set up what happens before that. I mean, it's the only scene that anyone remembers from this and movie. It's always been one of my favourite scenes in any film ever, because it just completely comes out of nowhere. It's completely ridiculous, but also weirdly fitting, and watching it again for the for the podcast does actually have some kind of significance to the story. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah. Every time you play it, I'm just gonna fucking crease. I love it so much. Um, Alan! So, you should say, (laughs) right, okay, we should start by saying so, Jurassic Park 3, this is the first movie not, uh, well, not the first movie, the first Jurassic Park movie not directed by Steven Spielberg. Uh, It's produced by Steven Spielberg. Um, Sorry, Daffy Duck just possessed me for a minute there. Um, <laughs> Spirit of Daffy be gone. Uh, yeah, so uh, the power of Christ compels you. The power of Christ compels Daffy Duck. Um, so I think I meant Porky Pig there. Anyway, the point is this: Porky Pig and Daffy <laughs> Duck were not involved. Uh, Sp- <laughs> but are apparently interchangeable characters. Uh, yes, Porky Pig has the stammer. Right? He's like, "That's all, fuckers." Yeah, but but Daffy has like the really pronounced lisp, so he like stammers over his words at times as well. Anyway, we're not talking about Looney Tunes. Fuck you, Kent. We're we're talking about Sam Neil running away from dinosaurs. <laughs> yes, we are, and having <laughs> wet dreams about them on a plane. Um... <laughs> the best scene in any movie ever. <laughs> um, anyway, yeah. So what I was saying about the movie before we got sidetracked by Porky Pig. This was executive produced by Steven Spielberg. Yes. But it was directed by Joe Johnston of yes. uh, the Rocketeer fame. Joe um, Johnston, who's a surprisingly prolific filmmaker as well, actually. Yeah, he, he, he's, kind of a, he's kind of a workman, I'll say that. Um, if he has any kind of tone that you would necessarily point towards, I think the Rocketeer and, and Captain America the First Avenger are kind of his calling cards in the sense that he likes very kind of old school movie making. He's very yeah. uh, effects and set piece driven because also looking at his other films as well like Honey I Shrunk the Kids which yeah, of course, yeah. really Jurassic Park 3 really reminds me of in places like just the way that like, the big set pieces are handled like a lot of yeah. the scenes with like the Spinosaurus feel like that really fucking traumatizing scene in Honey I Shrunk the Kids where they get attacked by the scorpion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which yeah, as a yeah. which as a kid was genuinely terrifying. 
Um, yeah, so so he's kind of yeah, he's kind of one of these old school uh, B movie directors, I guess. He kind of works in A, a movie budgets, but like certainly, I think he he wouldn't um, he he wouldn't reject that comparison, I guess. Because when you think um, about like the like, because I know that like the Rocketeer was kind of his passion project in some regards. When you think about that as a movie, that is very old school, very mm-hmm. kind of nineteen forties pulp adventure. It's yeah, a great absolutely. movie. Um, and and you can see why like that got him Captain America as well because that's obviously the nineteen forties and all that. Um, this movie I think definitely plays into that tradition. I think yeah. he's very much making like an old school monster movie. And then um, there's even scenes that are very reminiscent of like uh, Ray Harryhausen stuff, where um, so like the battle between the T Rex and the Spinosaur, which is kind of early on in the movie. Yeah. Um, that's shot, although it's all CGI, just not not stop motion. It's definitely shot in the manner of a Ray Harryhausen monster battle scene, where it's all very wide shot, showing off the effects, brightly lit, and it's like, it's doing that. Um, there are also some some scenes that very much make use of like smoke and shadow, like the scene with the uh, the pterodactyls later on, which or, is the best the scene ter- of the movie. Pterodons of whatever kind they are, but um, they uh, yeah we, yeah I think it's one of the best scenes of the movie yeah where they're, like, emerging from the, the fog, and it's very um, dramatic. I still, like, to this day, think... Well, we, we will go into that scene in more detail later, but I still, to this day, think that visual of the one coming out of the fog is genuinely quite creepy. Yeah, I think it's one of... It's actually, unironically, one of the better dinosaur reveal scenes. Pterosaur. Mm. I'm right, okay. Oh, no, it's a pterosaur. Um, um, I'm just going to call it a pterodactyl, because I don't care. Well, a pterosaur refers to flying dinosaurs. Oh, okay. Well, yeah. you know, sorry for my ignorance. Uh. I'm probably wrong about that anyway. And there's probably be <laughs> some cunt in the comments being like, actually. <laughs> oh, the actually people. <laughs> or we'll just drop a fact checking goblin in to dissuade them. Yeah, we should probably let the goblin out. It's been a while. It's been. Mom, shut up, goblin. <laughs> Trapped in that cage with poor Henry. No, oh, Henry the Twink. That's what became of him. That's a callback. <laughs> <laughs> so if you're just joining us for this episode where we talk about Crank 2 and Jurassic Park 3, you'll have no idea who my ex-twink lover is. Ex-twink lover? Well, you heard it here first. Oh, yeah. Updates on... What uh, happened? Too many Meryl Streep movies. Too many. I, I just... I couldn't handle it, mate. I was just done. Couldn't stop looking at her fucking... I, just, I couldn't handle looking at her smug fucking face anymore. Anyway, this is <laughs> not about me beating him with sticks. So, Henry slammed the goblin. Slammed. Streep. <laughs> slammed. <laughs> Anyway, <laughs> so let's uh, backpedal slightly. So this movie, um, what I will say about it before sort of talking about the plot is the, the, one of the main comparisons I'd make with this movie is this movie kind of, to me, feels like what Aliens is to Alien. Yeah. It's, it's more of like a, it's, it's trying to be more of like a visceral action heavy, set piece heavy, you know, dinosaurs, humans, chaos ensues kind yeah. of thing. And I feel that's evident from the very beginning, even like down to the title card, which is like Jurassic Park, and then a, a claw literally rips through the words. And it's like, okay, yeah. so we're, we're, we're kind of leaning more into horror with this one and action and stuff. And it very much feels like it is more geared towards being a, a horror movie in, in places, but obviously it's, it's, it can't go the full tilt on that because it's still a Jurassic Park movie. Yeah, well, I think the first one still has elements of horror, but yeah, this one definitely... It leans away from the kind of wonder element of it and, and is purely a, a monster movie, a survival flick. 
Because the biggest example of that is the Spinosaurus, who is just yeah. a constant threat. Because in the original movie, the T-Rex is a threat, and you know the re- yeah. the first scene where the T-Rex attacks him in the car is brilliant and is a really mm. great suspenseful scene. But then after that, the T-Rex doesn't really do a whole lot until the end, yeah, where the, it, the, it the saves the day. Saves the day, yeah. Yeah. Whereas the Spinosaurus is just an outright villain and once yeah. the character's dead the entire movie and well they have the uh, the the once upon a time in hollywood scene where the spinosaurus beats up the t-rex yes um <laughs> which i think is well it doesn't just beat it up it kills it it snaps it, it, its it, neck it made me it made me think of that scene in uh, in once upon a time in hollywood where they're talking about they they bring in the new star to beat up the old star yeah <laughs> so that the new star looks cooler yeah <laughs> yeah but i think i think it worked yeah, because if, especially when you compare it to like Jurassic World, where they have the Indomitus Rex. Yeah, it's like uber been, genetic. Like, it's like dinosaur, it's yeah. big and it can think and it can drive cars and it fucked your wife. And it's like <laughs> okay, fucking calm down. And do you know I mean, what? I reckon well, Spinosaurus would well have it up. Like, yeah, the Spinosaurus, the Spinosaurus would batter that gun. Yeah, literally. <laughs> but uh... Indomitus Rex slammed. <laughs> So like, so yeah, the start of this movie it already leads into that horror territory where yeah. you've got the people on a boat with the young kid. Uh, is his name Kevin? Is that his name? Uh, something like that. We should know because they shout it about five hundred times. And yeah, that's all like Tia Leone does in this movie. Um, Tia Leone, there's a name from the past. Yeah, uh, still wife of David Duchovny. Possibly. Possibly. Yeah. I, I, I kind of want to drop in Obi Wan there, so that's a name I haven't heard in a long time. <laughs> Do that. Do that. No. <laughs> um, so they're paragliding next to Isla Sorna, which, again, at the very start of the movie, they just go, restricted. Just played away. So, A, why the fuck are they there? Why have they taken a child there, is what I want to know. Yeah, well, we need to address this, right? We've talked about the Legion of Uncles in the previous episode. <laughs> I don't think this uncle, who's taken the kid to the fucking dinosaur island, He's not making it into the Legion of Uncles. He's on the Legion of Uncle Wall of Shame. He's for disgraced. He is disgraced. The role of the uncle. For being like, hey kid, do you want to come with me to look at some dinosaurs? Which, obviously that kid would say yes. Why wouldn't he? Mm. And then we have that, there's this little moment at the beginning where like they end up going into like a sort of fog bank, I guess. And Hang on, I, I want to address the dodgy guy on the boat because... The uncle character does say, oh, I'll pay you a bit extra if we, can, if we see something good. And the guy goes, I'll take you close, but uh, not too close. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, all right. If that guy is saying don't get too close, maybe don't get too fucking close. Because <laughs> like this, the... this is the guy who runs dinosaur fucking boat gliding. <laughs> he does Dark Taurus Dinosaur Edition. Like, that's what he yeah. does. And he's saying don't get too fucking close. Then don't get too close, you know? And then they go into that little, like, fog bank, and then the two people driving the boat just disappear. No clue how they died. They just disappear. So I'm like, okay, so aquatic dinosaurs are definitely more of a thing. We just don't see them. Apparently the movie doesn't have time for that. Um, Uh, Aquatic dinosaurs. That's the correct term. I won't be dropping a goblin in. I'm gonna go with water saws. Anyway. (laughs) (laughs) No, that's what you get if you stay in the water too long. So the water saws eat these guys. Um, <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> hashtag water saws. It's a thing. Anyway, uh, so the water saws eat these guys. Uh, and then the kid and his uncle who are paragliding get 
uh, you know, cut, get cut loose and crash onto Isla Sorna. Yeah. The uncle also promptly dies, right? He dies. They find his body, I believe. Okay, we um, do find his body. Yeah, I forgot about that. I've, yeah, no, it is his body because he's got the life preserver on. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, that is right. Yeah, yeah. yeah and he's been like completely skinned. Like, I'm not sure because that kid's been there for what is it like three months, something like that, something ridiculous, like he's a ridiculous, the... a ridiculous seem... amount of time yeah, for that kid to have while, survived yeah. on that island. And that's where Dr. Alan Grant, the amazing Sam Neill, comes into it. Yeah, that's Sam right, because the, the uncle has been completely skinned, which suggests that the dinosaurs are doing it out of cruelty to send a message. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> given, given what we learn about the velociraptors in this movie, that wouldn't surprise me. Yeah, to be me. fair, the velociraptors have increased in intelligence. Like, scarily so from the previous movies where they're just kind of... Well, I mean, in the first movie, they're not exactly dumb, are no, they? Like, they're shown, in the first movie, they're shown to have, like pack tactics they're intelligent survivors and this movie implies that they do a lot of what they do just to be cunts and and that they can talk to each other that's a really important yeah. factor which we have to make a note of not only it... can they commune with each other they can <laughs> commune with humans as do don't do it don't do it Alan. <laughs> so like freddy krueger they can enter your dreams and communicate <laughs> so let me get the preamble out of the way so we can discuss the greatest scene in all of cinema. Um, Alan. <laughs> so, Dr. Grant is giving a talk on uh, dinosaurs, like he tends to do. Um, and I do like the fact that he asks, uh, has anyone got any questions? And all these hands go up. And he's yeah, like, yeah. I don't want to talk about the events of Jurassic yeah. Park. I, mean, I want to address this. This movie is about how Sam Neill doesn't want to be in Jurassic Park anymore. Because Yes, yes it is. He start like like that's him in the pre- on a press tour, right? Yeah. And then then later on he's like nothing in oh at the end of that scene he's like nothing on God's earth would get me back to that island apart from money, which is the exactly. fucking reason he's in he's in Jurassic Park three because William H Macy's character writes him a big fat check and then he goes back to Jurassic Park. <laughs> it's... it's like how every Men in Black movie is about Tommy Lee Jones not wanting to be in the Men in Black movies. <laughs> So I do what? want to address this because Alan Grant in this movie is misanthropic to the extreme. It, do you know what he really puts me in mind of? He's what? very, uh, he's no way near as intense or as over the top, but he's very like Dr. Loomis in this movie, I think. Yes. He's, you know, he's, he, very... he's like, Dr. but he's like Dr. Loomis if Dr. Loomis just hated everyone. <laughs> like, there are scenes in this movie where he's just being a prick for no reason. And I know that like, in the first movie, he's kind of surly, right? Like, he's, he's you know, he doesn't like kids. That's the thing in the first movie. And then he learns to, he bonds with John Hammond's grandkids. But yep. in this movie, he's got strong divorced dad energy. Um, <laughs> but anyway, we'll get to that. But this is the thing, right? Because um, there's another bit that made me think of, um, uh, this is about Sam Neill not wanting to be in Jurassic Park movies until they write him a big fat check. Because when he visits Laura Dern, who he's, uh, who was Dr. Ellie... Somebody in the first movie. She she was um, in it, yeah. She was in it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, but she was she was like the, his love interest in the first movie. Yeah, um, which clearly hasn't gone anywhere. Yeah, which is kind of an interesting choice. I know a lot of people are like, "Oh, that's kind of a letdown because the first movie, the first movie is kind of about how like they are together in the first movie, and she wants kids and he doesn't like that's the subtext yeah. kind of underneath, and then he learns to bond with John Hammond's kids." 
And so it becomes kind of... It's implied that it's a possibility for him that he might want to have a family, right? But that's but, not the case. <laughs> yeah, but because, like, her kid is not his son, is it? I don't think so, because she's married, isn't she? Yes. And she doesn't... And, like, the son doesn't call him dad or anything. No, 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 no. But, no, because the, the, the dad comes home at some point, doesn't he? Like, yeah. Well, no. I didn't know if that... Yeah, but I didn't know if that was the stepdad or the dad. This is something I was like, is this unclear in the movie where, like... Did they have a kid and then break up? Or what? I don't believe that that's his kid, no. Okay. In that case, it's quite weird that he's just hanging around with his ex and talking to her kid about dinosaurs. But, you know, Alan Grant is going to Alan Grant. That's how he rolls. Um, but what, what I did find funny about that is uh, <laughs> the kid calls him the dinosaur man. Yeah. <laughs> which clearly, uh, clearly grates on him. He tries to get the kid to call him Alan. And then there's also a bit where he's trying to get the bird to say his name, like the parrot to say his name. And, it, and he goes, oh, I used to remember my name. And that, again, I think is commentary on Sam Neill not wanting to be in these movies. <laughs> because everyone, uh, everyone knows him as the guy from Jurassic Park and he doesn't want to be known as that. When he needs to be known as the, the guy from Possession. That's what he needs to be mm. known as. Um, or the guy from Yeah, exactly. Like, you know, because Sam Neill is genuinely one of my favourite actors. So Yeah, he's great. He's, he's great. just great in everything he's in. And yeah, I actually do think there's a. I actually think you're right. I think this movie is very much making a commentary about Sam Neil not wanting to be in these fucking movies. But he clearly is not having a bad time doing this one. I think he's no. he's clearly well, having the, fun. This is the moral of the movie: is he doesn't want to be in the Jurassic Park movies until he finds the kid on the island, right? So this whole movie is about him being like, I don't want to do any more Jurassic Park movies. It's fucking dumb. I hate it. But then when he sees how much kids love it. He's like, I'll go on then, one more. But I think as well, like the kid that he meets on the island is like every bit as kind of like jaded as he is in places. <laughs> like, yes, like, yes. Like, that kid's got some attitude. Like compared to the kids in the first movie, I think this kid is way more likable as a result, just because he's he's got a bit of sass about him. Yeah, I, I can agree to that. I can agree to that. Um, but also, I think I feel... this movie. I think this movie does suffer from. Um, I mean, it's clear that they just didn't have Laura Dern for much of the movie. It kind of misses her, I think. Yeah, their dynamic is can, missing. You can get away sure. with not having Jeff Goldblum. Because I think Jeff Goldblum has the classic, in Jurassic Park anyway, as Ian Malcolm. He has the classic uh, Johnny Depp in Pirates of the Caribbean thing, where everyone loves that character, so they think he should be the lead. And then when you have The Lost World, you realise, like, he's not really the lead character. He's better off as the eccentric supporting character because in that way you can contrast him to to Alan Grant, who is who is a more interesting character than uh, Johnny Depp's foil of Orlando Bloom in, uh, in yeah. Pirates of the Caribbean, admittedly. But like, but again, like that's why Ian Malcolm is so memorable because of how he rubs up against John Hammond and Alan Grant. So when you put him in the lead, he's not really bouncing off anyone. He's just supposed to be the focal center of the movie. So yeah, I think I mean, it's one of the key issues that The Lost World has. It's like, that character is less interesting the more you get to know him as a person. Because I think when he's just the counterpoint to everyone else, he's interesting. I think you, know, you said about, like, um, this film's missing the, the sort of chemistry between Sam Neill and Laura Dern, and, like, their kind mm. of dynamic and stuff. And I think this film tries to replace that with William H. Macy and Tia Leone's character. But yeah. I think their arc is a bit... I don't know, it's a bit ham-fisted for me where it's implied that he's very cowardly and mm. she's not about that, apparently. I mean, like, he, you know, she married him at one point, so clearly she was into him. 
Well, I think it's, yeah, assume, I, I think so. what I think they're going for, and I think in some scenes it works and some scenes it doesn't, is they're kind of going for this idea of like, yeah, they're kind of seeing each other's value again because of the crisis they're in. Whereas like previously there were traits about each other that kind of pissed each other off. Or, you know, so like there's the scene where he's on about like, um, if she says to him, oh, you, you seem to have lost a lot of weight. He goes, oh yeah, I've been swimming, and she goes, oh, you don't know how to swim. And he says, I-, I learned. So yeah, I think there's some like, I think there's something there. I don't think they quite extract it very well. No. I kind of like, I like those characters though. Like, yeah, I like, exactly. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, William I like H. Macy's they, they, great. I like the fact they try and highball Alan Grant at the start because they act like they're big money rustlers. Um, that's an insane car posse film. I don't know why I said that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> We'll go, we'll go with that. Yeah, that's they're, fine. If I can have water wrestlers. sauce, you can have that. They're big money wrestlers. But, um, <laughs> and uh, it turns out that, uh, in fact, William H. Macy owns a hardware store. Yeah. So he, he's not hard up for cash, but he certainly isn't. Because the, the scene when he's introduced to Alan Grant, he's like, oh, I can write any number on this check to give to the Paleontologist Society of America. <laughs> Whatever it is he works for. But okay, so but let's talk about the the supporting characters a little bit then, because we've got those two, a divorced couple who come together to save their kid. Yep. Very Spielbergian. We kind of get what they're going for there. Yeah, the Spielberg by... loves Spielberg loves a broken home. That's the thing. So which is very it's, telling, I think. It's very telling. Yes, I'm sure that this has not gone unremarked over the years, but like most of Spielberg's Spielberg spiel. Uh, often relies on the broken home. Sometimes coming back together, sometimes not. Blah blah blah. Right. Mm-hmm. And this is kind. Of, this is why I kind of think uh, that Ellie and Alan Grant being separated is like not actually that that far outside the realms of possibility. I think if it was, if it was a Spielberg movie, they'd get back together at the end. Probably. Yeah. Kind of, they, but I, I actually kind of like like when I first saw this movie when I was a, a young man. When did this movie come out? Like two thousand and three or something. Something like that. I mean, I saw this at the cinema when it came out. I very vividly remember going to see it because... I mean, I, I didn't see it in the cinema, but I rented it from a video shop. It's 2001 this came out, 2001. Oh, wow, okay, yeah. Yeah. So I, yeah. I rented yeah. it from a video shop. No, I saw it at the cinema. VHS! Because I can remember, like, when I saw the original Jurassic Park when I was quite young, I found, like, the dinosaurs kind of scary, and then I remember the prospect yeah. of going to see Jurassic Park 3 in a cinema was, like, kind of scary to me, but I ended up really enjoying the movie, so... Yes. So, yes, in terms of the supporting characters, then, um, we have... So, uh, yeah, so we, we've mentioned that Ellie Sattler yep. is in this movie, uh, Laura Dern's character from the first one. Um I kind of like how they're clearly good friends, even though they've split up. Um, yeah, I agree. Actually. She says she says to him at the start, like, "Oh, you're still you're still the best," and all this kind of stuff. And at the end, she's the one who calls him the cavalry. Yeah, and it's, it's kind of it's kind of interesting as well in like a sort of big budget movie to see uh, a broken well a relationship that didn't work out. I shouldn't really say broken because I guess it's not, but like a relationship that didn't yeah. work out that actually has like a positive outcome at the end of it. Because usually, yeah. like in a lot of other movies, that would be you know, they'd be bitter at one another or there'd be like a lot of unresolved stuff between them. But in this movie, they clearly get along and like he's happy to be around her kid and stuff. So yeah. And her husband's clearly happy for him to be around as well. Like he doesn't. Have yeah. To. The the only other example in the mainstream movie I can think of, and this is one of my favorite Marvel characters, is the stepdad of Ant Man's daughter, 
because ah uh, yes yes and like those those movies are not exceptional movies but what I like about them is the supporting cast and like they're, they're kind of just fun little romps yeah but I like I I fucking love in fact how the stepdad in the second one especially is just super into Porat. he's just like <laughs> he just loves the guy he's just like I just think he's a swell guy you know like he's fucking Ant Man that's cool like. <laughs> Got a little bit of a man crush on him, yeah. Yeah, but I like that element. Like, there's something that I think is kind of mirrored in Jurassic World, Jurassic Park Three, is like, yeah, clearly everyone still thinks like Alan's a great guy and he's cool and everything, but it just hasn't worked out, you know. Yeah. They wanted different things, clearly. <laughs> and also, you can see there's a difference between those two characters because he brings up like, uh, you know, what what do you think about going back to, you know, what, what, you know, do you imagine the dinosaurs and stuff like that? And she kind of says like, I don't like to think about it. So she's clearly at a point where she's trying to put that behind her, whereas he's got some unresolved issues with Jurassic Park. He does, um, yes. He needs to go back. That's the conversation between Sam Neill and Laura Dern, where she's like, I don't want to, do, I don't have to, I don't have to. <laughs> like, you, I, know? you know, she's worked with David Lynch a bunch of times, like, she's sad. Yeah, like, like... I'm, a, I'm a real actor. <laughs> I'm going to be in the least controversial Star Wars movie of all time in a decade. <laughs> She's going to be voicing <laughs> Bill Burr's wife in a in a really really yeah, racy yeah. cartoon. Yeah, yeah. Um, yes, the, uh, the Netflix animated sitcom when he just keeps rolling in, baby. <laughs> uh, Other supporting characters though, we have uh, Billy. Yeah, so this is Grant Allen's assistant. Yes, um, who introduces Alan to the idea that Velociraptors could communicate because he does like a three D printing of their like vocal chamber. Yeah, that was weird. I didn't realise we had 3D printers in the year 2001. I'm not entirely sure we did. (laughs) I think it might be be that uh, movie magic we hear about sometimes. Oh, wow, okay. So they invented the concept for Jurassic World 3. Jurassic Park 3. Keep saying Jurassic World as a cancer. Yeah, why do you keep saying that movie? It sucks. Chris Pratt? I don't know why I just said that as if that was supposed to negate it being a bad movie. (laughs) If anything, he's the worst aspect of the movie. As he is in many of his movies, but we're getting sidetracked in a uh, I mean, slamming I, I crap. Could... Billy, that's where we were going before we went on. Yeah, so Billy is Dr. Alan Grant's assistant, a paleontologist. And, and aside from, well, he's kind of one of the only characters who moves the story forward in any kind of significant way once they arrive on the island, because he is a bad man, Billy is a bad man, because he steals velociraptor eggs. He's sus. He's very sus. He steals those eggs. So, yeah, he's a, a bit of a wrong one. Um, and so he steals these fucking eggs. And so, therefore, a pack of velociraptors just start chasing them down throughout the movie. Yes. Um, they become, like, a more recurrent threat. And so fuck Billy is what I'm saying. Like, he's a dickhead. Yeah, Billy, Billy fucked up, but he dies, so it's fine. He doesn't die. Yeah, he fucking does. No, he doesn't. He's alive at the end. Who fucking dies then, Camp? A couple, basically, the characters who you don't really get to know their names die. So when they first arrive on the island, two of the guys... Mate, like, are you sure Billy doesn't die? Because I swear to God he dies. Billy is alive at the end. Did I stop paying attention at a crucial point? You probably did. After well, I, the thought spiders... he dies of the, I thought he dies at the pterodactyl bit, maybe. No, no, he, he's alive. He's seriously injured, but he's alive. I've got it here yeah. on Wikipedia. They discover I'm that looking, Billy... I'm looking well, at it. They discover that Billy, while seriously injured... Has also been rescued. Well, that's shit. <laughs> died. I mean, he probably should have, but you know, this movie's a PG. Was it a PG or a twelve? This movie. 
Uh, I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> That's the level of fact-checking quality you get from Kino Inferno. It's whether I can be bothered to look it up. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, so we've talked about the characters, we've talked about the plot, really, but I mean, this movie is oh, all about yeah, the dinosaurs. Yeah, so, so all, all the people who die straight away are just like random mercenaries, right? Yeah, they're mercenaries. Well, they said the they're people. not even they're not even mercenaries. It turns. <laughs> yeah, you you find out that they're not. Yeah, they're just yeah. sort of hired jockeys that will kind of do anything. Um, yeah, and they didn't realize that uh, he was kidnapping Alan Grant either. Yeah, which I, uh, oh yeah, because one of them yes, how could I forget? One of these guys gets one of the most brutal deaths in the movie, where he's running towards the plane. The plane won't slow down because the pilot's like, "Fuck this, we need to get off this island." Then the Spinosaurus just jumps out of nowhere and bites the cunt in half. And then, like, <laughs> blood just splashes along the fucking windows. That does like, happen. Jesus Christ. And this is what I like about the Spinosaurus, and this is why he's best dinosaur in the Jurassic Park canon of villains, because he is ruthless, he just constantly hunts them down, and he will just stop at nothing. It's a shame that the way they defeat him is really kind of bullshit, though. Hmm. Yeah, I've got to say, the Spinosaurus has the Sigma male grind set throughout this movie. <laughs> <laughs> Wow. Um, <laughs> wow. Uh, <laughs> this podcast is getting sus. Look, if there's any beta males listening to this, you're fucking soy boy cooks. Only Sigma males on Kino Inferno. <laughs> I mean, I will admit, like, yeah, I will lobby my biggest complaint at this movie is the, the final scene where they kind of square off against the Spinosaurus is a bit weak. Yeah. It's, it's a bit they kind of just spook it away with fire. Yeah, it's a bit naturally. Basically, yeah. it. Like, that's yeah. what they really do. Um, when that, obviously, I mean, like, clearly, really... they sh- clearly, they should have built a mech. <laughs> I feel like two T-Rexes should have come out of the woodwork and killed it. Like, <laughs> yeah, like, I mean, it's not as dumb as Jurassic World where they summon the T-Rex to beat up the Indomitus Rex. Yeah, because that's... It's the, same fucking, it's the same fucking T-Rex. It's stupid. It's stupid. It's stupid. I hate it. Yeah, but I do like the scene uh, towards the end where uh, the Velociraptors corner the survivors again and they have to give them the eggs back. Uh, mm. I really quite like that scene because I don't know what I find that the, even though the Spinosaurus is great and he's like a great like force of evil, I think the yeah. Velociraptors are a bit more intimidating because they're smart. Like any of the scenes where they get attacked by Velociraptors are a lot more intense, I think. Um, yeah, my only pl- complaint about that is that in this movie they really emphasize how intelligent the Velociraptors are. But they never show one reading a newspaper and smoking a pipe. <laughs> this isn't Gremlins. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly what I wanted in this movie because they used to because there's a whole theme in this movie where like because yeah he three D prints the Velociraptors like vocal cords or whatever, and they talk about like, how the Velociraptors had a kind of language that they could speak to with one another. I wanted them to cut to a Velociraptor wearing glasses reading a fucking newspaper. He's like the brain Gremlin from Gremlins too. <laughs> I mean, are you saying that wouldn't make this movie an instant five stars? I mean, we already have the Velociraptor saying. Oh, yeah, sorry, I'm not going to oh. Alan. So I guess, you know, glasses wearing Brainosaurus is not too far outside the realms of possibility. Um, <laughs> we've, kind of, we've kind of gone around the houses on this one, I think. I mean. This has been quite a loopy episode. <laughs> So not the usual level of penetrating, deep uh, criticism. No, but again, I mean, you know, we're discussing good, bad sequels, I guess. So, I mean, you can't yeah. really... 
I mean, unless you've got anything you desperately want to add about um, Jurassic Park Three. I, all I'd really say about it is uh, I just think it's it's a very it's quite a fun movie. I will agree with you. It does kind of sag in places a little bit. Um, I, but... I will say it is it is kind of the ideal like hangover movie, in the sense that if you like by hangover movie, I mean I'm borrowing this phrase from a much better podcast. For we hate movies. Check it out. But um, why are we always promoting things that are bigger than us? Anyway. Um, <laughs> They've got to they suck defi- up their teats to get nourishment so they promote us, that's why. <laughs> but they define it as like a movie where if you fall asleep for a 20-minute stretch, it doesn't really matter. But it's broadly pretty entertaining. And yeah, I, would, yeah, I see that, I see that, yeah. I would put Jurassic Park 3 on that category. Where it's like, if I was pretty hungover when I was watching this and I just kind of zoned out for 20 minutes to half an hour, it wouldn't matter. But at the same time, as I'm watching it, I'm kind of like, this is pretty fun. There's nothing in it that's going to, that's too aggressively stupid that it puts me off. It has the great scene where he goes, Alan, that's good. 10 out of 10. Um, Objectively the best scene in cinema. Absolutely. Um, But it's also, I think it's just full of really great little moments as well. Like one of my favorite moments is like sort of cheesy as it is, is the scene where the characters meet up on the different sides of the fence and then they hear the phone ringing. And obviously the phone was in the pocket of the dude that the Spinosaurus ate. And I just mm. like that scene where they're like, oh, well, I don't have the phone. Where is it? And they turn around, the Spinosaurus is just there looking at yeah, them. Yeah, that, that's, that's a great. fun scene. Yeah, that's a yeah, fun that's scene. just great. Because that's, yeah. again, that's that's very much a horror movie trope. Yeah. Um, and I like that. I it, does, like... it does have the thing where this massive dinosaur can apparently sneak up on them. <laughs> yeah. That is <laughs> don't, uh, a don't, Jurassic Park trope. Don't think about it. Yeah, don't think about it. The same thing happens in the first one. It's even more egregious. Because... The T-Rex, right, in the first one, is introduced that when the T-Rex moves, famously, it shakes the glass of water in the, in the car. It does, like, yeah. You, you feel the vibrations. And yet, in the final scene of the movie, this T-Rex performs a sneak attack. It appears <laughs> out of nowhere, despite the fact that the rest of the movie makes it very clear that if the T-Rex is coming <laughs> towards you, you can feel it coming towards you before you see it. Yeah, that is that is one of those like famous movie moments that bugs me because it does completely break the film's logic. I mean, it's um, kind of like how in any Godzilla movie, sometimes Godzilla just appears out of nowhere, despite the fact he leaves a trail of devastation in his wake at any other point. <laughs> I do also love the reveal of the T-Rex in this movie, where they sort of push apart the bushes, and there's this, like, giant corpse, and then the T-Rex just sort of lifts its head up, (laughs) and it's just, it's a bit where Dr. Grouch goes, don't move, and everyone just fucks off. (laughs) Yeah. I always think that's great. It's a callback to the first one, I guess. It is, yes. Um, I also like it. the other callback as well, where they're having to rifle through the Spinosaurus shit to find the phone. Yes, I had that in my notes, actually. I forgot to mention that. that. That's a fun scene. Um... Yeah, it's yeah. kind of. Um, I thought the callbacks were okay as well. Like, it wasn't one of those movies where it's super egregious and the callbacks are, like, so obviously the thing. Because, like, I, I was watching that scene where they rifle around in the shit for the phone and I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, this is kind of a callback, I guess. But it's kind of the thing where, like, unlike the T Rex scene, it's natural that the T Rex appears and you have a callback to that scene because, like, that is something Alan would say in that scene. He would yeah, say, literally. don't yeah. move, you know. It is a bit of a callback. But, um, yeah, it kind of... <laughs> to contrast with something that I thought was an egregious callback and something I watched recently, um, Mark's going to roll his eyes as soon as I say these two words. But I was watching a recent episode of Doctor Who. And, uh, I don't want to massively roll my eyes, but go on. But, um, yeah, there's, there's an episode where they brought back, uh, you know, the Weeping Angels. Oh, uh, um, yes, I heard about this. 
And it was a good episode, actually, surprisingly, for Modern Who. But one of the things that was kind of egregious about it was they constantly said the phrase, don't blink, don't blink, don't blink, don't blink, don't blink. Even after they'd already established, like, these are the rules. You don't have to tell all the characters over and over again. They just kind of constantly said that because that was, like, the famous thing from the original Weaving Angels uh, story, Blink, uh, obviously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah which the Doctor is... says, don't blink, not even a little bit or whatever he says. So, yeah, I kind of thought, like... <sighs> If if Doc, if Alan had said like, you know, its vision is based on movement, which is the line from the first movie, then it would have felt egregious. But the fact that he he's just calling back to what the T Rex does rather than yeah, I, yeah, because I feel like I think this movie isn't trying to like insult the viewers' intelligence in that way. I think no, this, I, this is kind of before the time as well when like callback humor was all that sequels were there for. Because there's a couple of really good little gags in this movie. Like uh, one of my favorites is the fact that the Spinosaurus is technically the second most evil dinosaur in mm. this movie because Barney is in this movie. <laughs> because true. when they're trying to call for help when the Spinosaurus is attacking them on the boat, um, and obviously the little kid, uh, Laura Dern's kid, picks up the phone and uh, they're like, "Yeah, say so go get mummy, go get mummy," and uh, he gets distracted by Barney. They nearly die because of that fucking purple dinosaur. Yes, the most yes. evil dinosaur. The and most evil dinosaur. The most evil dinosaur. So I think we've yeah we've got around the houses a bit on Jurassic Park. I think we burnt ourselves out on Crank to be honest. Because like how else how do you follow sorry, on from Crank? Sorry, too? we burnt ourselves out on Crank, Mark. Is that something you want to have on the record? That phrase. <laughs> I didn't think of that. <laughs> I mean, what culture? If you're listening, Mark Smith burnt himself out on Crank today. Uh, what can I say, mate? I'm just a secret method. Anyway. Aren't we all? Yeah. Uh, but no, so what we said, Jurassic Park. Hashtag secret method army. <laughs> Methods unite. <laughs> That's together. what our fan base could be called. <laughs> the every, fan, every fan base needs a cute little nickname. And, so ours are the secret methods. And and I reckon, right, if we get enough of us, we could easily take down that Spinosaurus. We could beat him up. I thought you were going to say we could take down the gunman. I mean, th- why not both? Why not both? Watch this space, listeners. Methods, sorry. Methods. We're Queen Methods. Secret Methods. Se- secret Methods. Sorry, my mistake. Um, it's either so... that or the, the Thackeray Binkses and that's just... <laughs> we don't need that. <laughs> so, Aiden, Jurassic Park 3, what are we saying? Kino or Inferno? Well, I mean, this is one of those movies where... I know you have a soft spot for this movie, and I have to admit, it's the best Jurassic Park sequel by some margin. But that's that, not saying much. That is, is saying very little. This movie is pretty mediocre for the most part. Um, it has some good elements, don't get me wrong. And some of the dinosaur and a lot of the dinosaur stuff is great. It thoroughly is what it is, which is just a B movie about dinosaurs, um, with some characters from a movie you saw in the nineties. Um, that said, as I said, it's a perfect hangover movie, so I can't necessarily confine it to the Inferno, but. It is a binary rating system, and I can't really give it Kino. So what I'll say is, we'll pop it on a sort of string, and we'll dangle it over the inferno. <laughs> but if we've had a bit too much, if we're a bit the worse for wear, we'll pop it out and we'll watch it. But then it's going back in its box that's hanging over the inferno. <laughs> I like that. I like that. Uh, I'm I'm a I'm gonna go with a soft Kino on this just because I do really like this movie. I've got a bit of a soft spot for it, like you said. But I feel like this 
This writing it, system is getting increasingly meaningless with every episode. I've always felt that way. <laughs> <laughs> but no, it's, it's, it's definitely got its fair share of problems, but the, the elements of the movie that I like, I, I, I think outweigh those for me personally. And it's just, again, it's a solid 90 minutes. It's something that I can just pop on and watch and enjoy. Um, mm. And it's got lots and lots of dinosaurs in it. And it do have dinosaurs. If you it has dinosaurs, lots of dinosaurs. It do have dinosaurs. We cannot fault it for that. No. I mean, I feel like Crank 2 would have been better if it had dinosaurs in it. I mean, I won't rule it out of Crank 3. I feel like there must be dinosaurs in it. <laughs> just stay from punching raptors in the face. I'm well into it. Oi. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, maybe that's how they can save the Jurassic franchise, right? Is just meld it with Crank. <laughs> just a bunch of, bunch of velociraptors with the gay condition. <laughs> Your raptors have the gay condition. <laughs> I mean, maybe that's it. Maybe that's how the next one will start. They, they, they've all gone lesbian. Because they're all female dancers. <laughs> they've all gone a bit lesbian. Um, for some reason, that means Jason Statham has to get involved. <laughs> but no, that's it. Okay, this is it, right? So the dinosaur population is dying out. And InGen want to save the dinosaurs so they can still have a theme park. But all the dinosaurs have gone lesbian, so they're not breathing. <laughs> Life is not finding a way. Are we so just gonna? They... Are we just gonna call them Lickalotopus? I feel like we have to. The Lickalotopus, yeah. Yeah, we're um, gonna have to. But this is the thing, Jason Statham, as we know, has <laughs> an interspecies level of semen. He can breed with any creature <laughs> on God's earth, um, and not only that, he will sexually pleasure any creature. That he has Even lesbian raptors. Yeah. So, who are very picky lovers, may we point out. Like. Yeah, so Statham gets airdropped into uh, whatever the island's called. That's like Major or whatever. Dropped onto it, and uh, he has to go around breeding with every creature. Meanwhile, he's only doing this because he's got a new heart that if he doesn't <laughs> five times every hour, will explode. And So it is both a crank sequel... And a Jurassic Park scene. And I'm just going to throw out that Amy Smart's character is going to always be watching from the bushes. Because as we know, she's into horse cock, so she probably likes watching Jason Statham just raw dog in these raptors. Well, there's going to be the obligatory T-Rex Statham Smart threesome scene. So producers, if you're listening, <laughs> give us money. If you're listening, <laughs> Jurassic Crank. <laughs> you heard it here first. So, I'm going to say goodbye now, because I need to purge myself of everything that you've just said. Okay, well, okay. We can end the podcast here, listeners. It's goodbye from Mark. It's goodbye from me. And you know who else it's goodbye from? Oh, God. Let's get straight to the biscuits. At 0800 hours this morning, an American soldier was eaten by a Nazi dinosaur. That's a Tyrannosaurus Rex. No, Claire, that's a Tyrannosaurus Rex. Try thinking first before you open your mouth.